Good afternoon, everyone. Good morning to those who are not in the Eastern time zone. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Since President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs in 1971, U.S. drug policy has focused relentlessly on interdicting and reducing the illicit drug supply, and in recent years, pressuring doctors to reduce the number of controlled substances they prescribe to their patients. Nevertheless, since the late 1970s, drug overdose deaths in the U.S. have continued to mount, exceeding 107,000 in 2021, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Rahul Gupta, the White House Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, stated the Biden administration would be, quote, prioritizing harm reduction practices because these are proven, cost-effective, and evidence-based methods that work to save lives, end quote. Overdose prevention centers, or OPCs, are a successful harm reduction strategy that has been saving lives in 16 developed countries, including the United States. Overdose prevention centers, also known as safe consumption sites or drug consumption rooms, began in Europe in the mid-1980s. Governments and harm reduction organizations now operate overdose prevention centers in much of Europe, Canada, Mexico, and Australia. Unfortunately, a federal law that prosecutors and harm reduction opponents call the Crack House Statute, it's actually 21 U.S. Code Section 856, makes overdose prevention centers illegal in the United States. Some OPCs in the United States operate in the shadows. Underground OPCs have been providing services since at least 2014, and more recently state and local officials have been approving them in defiance of federal law. Rhode Island lawmakers authorized a pilot program to allow privately funded overdose prevention centers commencing in late 2022, and two harm reduction organizations are currently partnering to open the state's first overdose prevention center sometime this year in Providence. And New York City and the New York City Department of Health began defying federal law by opening two overdose prevention centers on November 30th, 2021, operated by the harm reduction nonprofit On Point NYC. The OPC staff reported that they had reversed 230 overdoses as of April 3rd, 2022. That's 230 people who would have been dead. I recently testified before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Government and Surveillance and urged lawmakers to repeal 21 U.S.C. Section 856, thus removing a major federal obstacle hindering organizations that seek to help their neighbors by establishing overdose prevention centers. The Cato Institute has recently published my policy brief that reviews how overdose prevention centers are an effective mainstream harm reduction strategy, and a link to the paper is available on our event webpage. We're very fortunate to have with us today three people who are very familiar with this harm reduction strategy. Chelsea Boyd is a research fellow at the R Street Institute Integrated Harm Reduction Program and published a paper on the history and effectiveness of overdose prevention centers this past fall. A link to her paper is also provided on our webpage. Darwin Fisher is the C Senior Program Manager at PHS Community Services Society in Vancouver, British Columbia and manager of Insight, North America's oldest sanctioned overdose prevention center. Darwin participated in the Cato Institute Harm Reduction Conference in 2019, and links to Darwin's comments are also provided on this webpage. And Kaylin C is Senior Director of Programs for On Point NYC, and was the program and development lead for New York City's two sanctioned overdose prevention centers, the first overdose prevention centers to operate in, in the open in the United States. 
After we, uh, each of our experts share their thoughts, we'll engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event webpage or on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag Cato Health with a capital C and a capital H. Chelsea, uh, let me start with you. You've done a lot of research on overdose prevention centers, so please give the audience an overview of your research and your findings. Of course. Thanks for inviting me to participate in the panel. I'm really excited to be here and to see that two right of center organizations are talking about overdose prevention centers. Uh, it would be great to also see other right of center organizations talk about and promote all forms of harm reduction as well. So to get to the topic at hand, I'll begin by briefly summarizing the paper that I wrote about OPCs last year and highlighting some of the key points. So my policy paper starts by talking about the experience that Canada and Australia have had with opening OPCs. It evaluates the academic literature on these programs, but I'm not going to focus on that in this introduction because Darwin is here and he can give all of the details on the Canadian experience. So I'm going to just summarize a few key points from my paper. Um, the first one is that when it comes to authorizing OPCs internationally, there are a few qualities that really defined the pathway to legality. And the first one is that there's, it's usually a lengthy process. It's often contentious. Um, there's usually some people who engage in some level of tempor temporary civil disobedience in order to serve the people who need it most by opening underground OPCs. And then ultimately, the results of all of this is that OPCs end up being authorized. The second point that I want to make is that um, although I approach policy from a public health standpoint, I also tried to really discuss the evidence on how OPCs um, are associated with crime and public safety, because that's often a misconception that is used to um, advocate against OPCs. Um, I'll allow Kaylin and Darwin to talk about their experiences with law enforcement if they choose to, but just to summarize the evidence about OPCs and crime is that the studies that are out there show that there's no increase in crime associated with OPCs opening, and there are no ill effects, Ill effects on public safety. The third point that I want to call out from my paper is that I think that policy is often driven by numbers. So I include a section on cost-benefit analyses for OPCs. Um, and just from that, the um, in hypothetical cost-benefit analyses from four US cities, it shows that every dollar spent on OPCs saves about $2.33 to $4.89, depending on which city you're looking at. And the amount of net save annual savings can be up to almost $7 million, depending on the city. The next point that I want to call out from my paper is that there's an extensive discussion of what's happening in the United States with OPCs in various jurisdictions. So the cities that I highlight, the cities and states that I highlight are New York City, Philadelphia, Rhode Island, California, and then Seattle slash King County. And all of these places have explored or authorized OPCs in some capacity. Um, to summarize sort of how 
that process has gone is that policymakers at all levels of of policy, so or of government, excuse me. Um, so the state, county, and local levels have all authorized OPCs in various ways. Uh, pilot programs are often the way that jurisdictions propose opening OPCs. That's how it happened in Rhode Island and in California, although that legislation was vetoed. And then as far as my policy recommendations from the paper are concerned, the key takeaway is that the federal government really needs to clarify the legality of OPCs in some way. Uh, the ways that they could do this is by amending the Controlled Substances Act or perhaps issuing a memorandum that's similar to the Cole Memorandum, which outlined cannabis-related enforcement priorities for the Department of Justice. The challenge with that second one is that it could be revoked anytime that the administration changes, so it would only be a temporary solution. Those are the cliff notes from my paper, and there's a lot more that I could talk about, um, but I think a lot of it will be a lot more compelling coming from Kaylin and Darwin because they have personal experience navigating the policy environment of OPCs. I did just want to take a moment to zoom out a bit and talk about some bigger picture points related to harm reduction and OPCs uh, as a policy solution. The first one is that critics of harm reduction often believe offering methods to reduce risk, the risk of engaging in illicit substances, amounts to tacit approval of illicit behavior. It's important to recognize that harm reduction is non-judgmental. It doesn't minimize the potential risks or encourage potentially harmful behaviors. Harm reduction is about meeting people where they are, empowering people to choose less risky options when they're ready, and providing human, genuine human connection and support. This allows harm reductionists to communicate risk without dictating how a person must live their life. And it also allows them to help people anywhere along the spectrum of substance abuse, whether they're ready to enter treatment or simply need a meal. The goal of harm reduction is not necessarily abstinence, though. The second point that I want to make is that just like most public health interventions, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to harm reduction. There are a number of harm reduction services that policymakers can support in addition to OPCs, such as syringe service programs. It, it's also worth explicitly saying that supervised consumption is not a standalone solution to the overdose crisis. While supervised consumption has the potential to save many lives, we need to continue expanding access to naloxone and medication for overdose for opioid use disorder, as well as building out our treatment infrastructure in this country. What also needs to be said is that overdose prevention centers often provide a number of wraparound services. So things like um, housing assistance, social services assistance, uh, entry into treatment if someone is ready to do that. And that's in addition to supervised consumption. And that makes them a very, very valuable and um, effective resource in the community. My last point is just that from a policy perspective, it's really interesting to watch how state and local governments interact with the federal government. Uh, and it's interesting to see how states and localities have moved ahead with OPCs it, ahead of the federal government clarifying their legality. And while I think that the federal government needs to clarify the legality of OPCs to enable more to open, 
I'm also concerned that some states and localities will pass legislation banning OPCs. Uh, we already kind of see some of that happening currently. Uh, and we see that also with syringe service programs in some states. So practically, states are probably always going to retain the power to limit or ban overdose prevention centers, regardless of the federal government's position. However, I do have a little bit of concern that even after the federal government clarifies their stance that we will see some states not move forward with OPCs. So overall, I think it's vital that we expand all currently legal harm reduction services and explore authorizing methods that other countries already employ with success. I'm so excited to hear from Kaylin and Darwin about their successes and experiences opening the first authorized OPCs in their respective countries. They're truly pioneers, experts, and visionaries who are out there doing the work that needs to be done while I get to opine about policy. Thanks. Thank, thanks, Chelsea. That's a very interesting point that uh, you bring up about that even if we get the federal government out of the way, the states could separately uh, erect obstacles. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to discuss that a little later. Uh, Darwin, for years, you've been involved in managing Insight, North America's oldest and oldest sanctioned overdose prevention center in Vancouver, BC. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to, if you could tell all of us uh, the story of how Insight began, how it works, what it's doing, how, what it's accomplished. There's so much to talk about. I will try and confine it to <clears throat> 10 minutes. Um, and I'm going to echo a lot of the things that Chelsea brought up in her statement, which are completely valid in terms of the pragmatism of supervised consumption sites in terms of the flexibility of them. Um, harm reduction measures are place specific solutions. They need to resemble the community that they're serving and they are very flexible and malleable that way. There is one thing that is absolutely crucial, whatever you're doing, and that is to do it with love. The biggest question we have is not necessarily about logistics. It's about how are we going to decide we feel about people who use drugs? Are they them or are they us? Because that's a crucial difference. You cannot hate people and help them at the same time. And we have a very schizophrenic relationship with people who use drugs that we sometimes don't get quite resolved. And then we try and provide services for them and those services don't work well for them because we're not paying attention to them. We're not leveraging their expertise. And that's something that we had to go through in Vancouver, BC. As the 80s turned to the 90s, the chief coroner noticed that something strange was showing up on his stats and that overdose deaths were starting to skyrocket. And this was largely centered around the poorest area in Vancouver, which is the downtown east side. The failures of the war on drugs to prevent easy access to drugs the lowering of the price of heroin and cocaine and increasing inequality and lack of options for our poorest citizens meant that we had both a crisis in terms of drug overdose fatalities and a burgeoning crisis in HIV transmission. By the mid 90s, the downtown east side of Vancouver had the highest seroconversion rates for HIV in the Western world. So this crisis started to get attention yet it was a countable number of people who made a difference. I'm going to give some of their names. Mark Townsend, Liz Evans, Kirsten Stutzbecker, Dan Smalls, Bud Osborne, Ann Livingston, 
Dean Wilson, Ron Morgan, a constellation of people with very diverse backgrounds and very diverse interests. Liz Evans one time said that you're not gonna convince a whole legislature or a city council. You do advocacy almost by acupuncture. You win one mind and one heart at a time. And that can make a tremendous difference. The advocacy for harm reduction for the, for the rights and healthcare of drug users is largely an evolution of the civil rights movement and HIV AIDS activism. And damned if people weren't incredibly creative about how they pursued this. Example, there was a city council meeting and it was going to deal with whether or not they were going to pass a bylaw to allow a, uh, a community center for drug users. And so Mark, this very thoughtful and, and interesting gentleman said, let's do something different around protesting here. They got some folks from Vandu, which is the Vancouver area network of drug users, a political advocacy organization completely run by drug users. They got together some of the PHS folks and some of the Vandu folks, and they went to the costume shop. They bought skeleton costumes, 10 of them, one for each city councilor. And then one person got the Grim Reaper costume. Ooh, that's special. When that city council meeting opened up, they swarmed into there and a person in a skeleton costume stood beside each city councilor. And then the Grim Reaper came up to the podium and said to them, as you are considering your vote on this issue tonight, we wanted you to know what it feels like to have death standing beside you because that's what life is like in the downtown east side. Eloquence and wit and a bit of a sense of humor are necessities in what we do. And the advocacy to open up Insight uh, was, took years, it took information, it took all kinds of wit, it took all kinds of people, and it also took drug users themselves starting their own sites. Insight is the third supervised consumption site in Vancouver. The other two are nameless, they were created by people who found real estate, who had a cell phone, and who knew how to revive an overdose. In some ways, this intervention is so utterly basic that it, it beggars belief. I tour people at Insight frequently. It's a good tour. It starts early in the morning. They have to gather at 7.45 outside of Insight. I see them queuing up on the cameras. If it's the middle of winter, it's dark outside, it's rainy, and you're on the street. You know what I like to do then? I like to leave them there. I like to check my manicure and, you know, see if the chairs are straight. And then I go and I open the door and I welcome them in. And I tell them, you are experiencing the first benefit of a supervised consumption site. It's a roof. Warmth. And then I point out this weird device in the waiting room. It's on a cabinet, it's metal kind of fixtures. And I say, that's a sink. Wow. Running water, staple of the first world. That's another benefit of a supervised drug consumption site. And we talk about how the site works. There's a front desk, a waiting room, an injection room, a nursing treatment room, and a post-injection room. You to have coffee, the sweetest coffee you've ever had in your life, and to chill out before you have to go back on the street. It's a fairly simple design. It's a good looking design because 
Mark and other folks thought, let's have nice things for people instead of crap things because they're drug users. Um, and so that site, in order to develop the operating principles, you had to talk to the experts, which are the people that need to access the services. And you had to find out what their experiences are like accessing healthcare. Spoiler alert, they're not good. Bureaucracy, security guards, invasive questions, all kinds of trauma. The church-like atmosphere, all of that garbage. Just take that and rip it up. Have a system for getting people into the service that makes sense. That's about human connection and conversation. Preventing overdoses, reducing soft tissue infections, making referrals to treatment, to detox, these are all incredibly important things that happen. But the biggest thing that happens in a supervised consumption site is relationships and the creation maybe of meaning. Those are the most powerful tools. They, they beat buprenorphine to shit. You know what I mean? Um, that's what it's about. And so I'm talking to people who may be developing and running these sites, and I'm saying foreground that. Foreground the human factor, the relationships. Walmart did something really smart that I like. Liz liked it too. They have greeters. Somebody there to welcome you in. That's the sort of thing you need. Drug users have been vilified for a century. They have been told to hide, and they have done it. Hide behind the dumpster, hide in the washroom, hide wherever you can. Now we're trying to say, come back. Come back into the light of first world healthcare. And it's not always simple. We need to make it humanly accessible, not bureaucratic, not full of all that humiliating garbage. We need to make it really accessible for people who need that service. So Insight was developed with a minimum of bureaucracy and a maximum of engagement. When people sign up, we will have a conversation with them. And when I'm in front of somebody talking to them, I'm gonna ask some questions to make sure that they need the service. This is not hard to do if you're in front of someone and paying attention to them. And then if they agree to sign up, we don't ask for ID because people don't have ID, do they? Um, we ask them to give their name if they're comfortable with it and their date of birth, and we ask them to choose a code name identifier. And that's fun because you get to make up a silly name. And if you want to be a bit potty mouth, we allow that too, as long as it's not racist or sexist and all that stuff. And so you sign up somebody and it's a bit of fun, and then you talk them through the service. We have 13 booths in the injection room. Well, there's many thousands of drug users in the downtown east side, so sometimes wait times can be an issue, and that's what the waiting room is for. And we try and move that room and flow people through the injection room as quickly as possible, but we do not have time limits because that's garbage. Individuals need individual time. My timer needs to stop. Uh, all kinds of things that you need to play by ear. You need to play through relationships that way. So I talk people through the service and what happens is they find out that it makes sense, that it's non-judgmental, and that it's safe. And so last year, there were 81,000 visits to the injection room at Insight. Uh, there were just shy of 900 overdose reversals. 
there were 2,500 nursing interactions. I cannot count the number of recovery referrals and detox referrals. There were many hundreds of hours of employment for drug users there. And I, I think employing drug users is absolutely essential at, at all services for drug users. You know why? Because it makes sense, because they're experts, and because that is healthcare. The creation of stability, the creation of an identity that is non, not a pariah, all of these things are possible in that space. And that's how we need to leverage those spaces. They can be, it's controversial to say this, and radical, but they can be spaces of joy, spaces of laughter, spaces of recognition, where you find out stuff a middle-class person like me didn't know. Like I'm leaning over looking at someone using in a booth and they've got a copy of Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy O'Toole. And I'm like, some, some middle-class part of me is going, oh, you can read, you know? Work at these sites and get schooled like that every day. One of the beauties of the sites is that as a middle-class person, I tend to hang around with other middle-class hipsters. There's not that much mixing of the economic scales. Well, it's going to be different when you're working there and you will be better, so much, so much better off for it to actually understand what people face and where people come from sometimes. And not only joy is possible, but it's also a space where you are going to witness pain. I'll tell you a story right now. I tell it before, I tell it sometimes at tours because I'll never forget it in my life. There's a man who used this site a lot. He was around there a lot, tough guy. Maybe a little younger than me, built like a light heavyweight. I could tell because his shirt was always off, buff, tattooed, sometimes shadow boxing in the IR. And I thought to myself, do not get on the other side of those fists, Darwin. Anyways, one day, this tough guy comes up to me and he says quietly, can I talk to you about getting into detox? I'm like, yep. So we go into an office, close the door, put down the blinds. This man is in private. He is homeless. He is never in private. He's in private now. As soon as those blinds go down, he puts his head on the desk and starts crying. And I get behind my desk and I'm not quite sure what is going on here. And then he is weeping, weeping. And I could feel my back pressing up against the chair because I want to press my way out of the room. And he starts talking. He starts talking about getting raped every day when he was a child, every day. And what a piece of garbage he feels like every day. And he's weeping and he's talking about this, this tough guy. And I am thinking, my head's going, can I get him into detox? Can I get him into a shelter bed? Can I get him some permanent housing? Can I get him a cup of coffee? Can I get him a cup of juice? Can I get him a glass of water? Can I get him a cigarette? All me trying to get away from this insoluble pain. There's nothing to do there but witness it. And the worst thing is when that pain is never uttered, never witnessed, never known. So part of the value of these spaces that maybe needle exchanges can't give are moments like that, painful moments like that. And then joyful moments you're going to have as well. One time people started spontaneously singing Oh Canada in the IR. I kid you not. If you could videotape in there, which you can't, I would have definitely had that on my phone to show you guys, 
right? Human relationships and the evolution of relationships over time. It's not appointment-based healthcare. It's daily, a daily stop. And you get to see this relationships. Oh, the woman scared the crap out of me the first hundred times I saw her. The only thing she ever said to me began with F and ended in U. Uh, and then over time, something changes. That natural thing that happens when we know each other over time. And you end up with the deepest friendships over time. It's indescribable. And that is just normally what human beings do when you get them out of the, the BS, you know, and into a space where people can just relate to each other and care. Um, so the value of these places is, is I think, extraordinary. Just to put a, a, a little finer point on it, the drug using population in the downtown east side needed health care as badly as any group in Canada. And they weren't accessing it, even though there were many clinics in the downtown east side. But those clinics all ignored a central fact of their existence, which is their drug use. So Insight, allowing that, accepting that, had people streaming past healthcare. Every one of those injection room visits, you are streaming past healthcare. And the possibilities for accessing that healthcare are just natural. Jail cells? Ambulances, ERs, those are the most expensive real estate we have in North America. And that is our default for dealing with drug users right now, by and large. Chelsea has talked about the cost effectiveness. It is absolutely true. Um, so if you are conservative about those things, this is definitely something to consider. I'm not sure where I am on time here. I could probably talk for about three hours here, Jeff. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I, I want to go to Kaylin next, but I, I'd like to mention a lot of people when we hear we hear the word safe consumption site, I think to a lot of people, they're thinking just about safe from overdose or safe from HIV or hepatitis. But to a lot of people, it's also safe from being raped on the street or being beaten or killed by other people, uh, especially when you're in an impaired state. So. It's, it's safe in that way as well. Um, Kaylin, you were tasked with setting up the first two overdose prevention centers to operate out in the open in this country. Again, I'm saying this over and over again, in defiance of federal law. Tell us uh, how that all began and how they're working in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a big, huge, loving, virtual hug and shout out to Chelsea and Darwin for such beautiful, uh, just a beautiful platform to me. And I just agree and uh, echo everything that you said. Um, so how did it start in New York City? I want to be very honest with you. It started in Vancouver, BC. Um, it started uh, on the shoulders of insight. I am a dual citizen. I was born and raised in Canada and trained and cut my teeth and learned everything I know about harm reduction in Vancouver at the PHS Community Service Society uh, with Darwin and the rest of the team there. Uh, I was very fortunate, incredibly fortunate to be working with a team and in an environment where 
it was okay to try really innovative approaches to healthcare for people who use drugs, really innovative uh, programming full stop for people who use drugs. It was also okay to fail. Um, and in that environment, it was okay to throw things at the wall and say, we want to try this. We're going to do heroin maintenance. We want to try safer consumption. We need to think about integrating that into housing. We want a drug user center. We want all of these things. Um, we want crack pipe vending machines, um, all of it. Try it in an environment where there was, um, thanks to the advocacy of everyone that Darwin mentioned uh, over years, there was a platform of political support to do this work. Um, so, you know, all good things must come to an end. And in 2016, the writing on the, was on the wall for me in Vancouver. And I moved to New York City and joined uh, an organization in New York at the time called the Washington Heights Corner Project. And from there, uh, started sort of the long journey to figuring out how do I translate, how do we translate what we know uh, to the American context? How do we start this conversation here? How do we advance this conversation here? How do we translate these concepts, uh, you know, grappling with the very real reality that the war on drugs was born in the United States? It flourished in the United States, it failed in the United States, and, the, and Darwin and Chelsea both kind of alluded to this. In the American in society, people have very deeply held beliefs about the war on drugs, about people who use drugs, about people who sell drugs, and that sort of guides their thinking, particularly around harm reduction. Further, harm reduction, as we all know and love it, it it couldn't really be practiced in the United States. How can you practice harm reduction in the United States when fundamentally everything about it was illegal? How could you do it? So we had this kind of watered down version of harm reduction that was the sort of like spreading through the United States, really centered on uh, syringe exchange, often one-on-one, one-to-one syringe exchange, um, and maybe naloxone distribution, but that was kind of it. So how, how were we going to make this leap from this kind of reductive and limited understanding and embracing of harm reduction as, a, as an evidence-based philosophy? How are we going to jump the chasm to safe consumption services? Um, Chelsea talked about this. Darwin talked about this too. Insight was the third consumption site in Vancouver, not the first. Uh, Jeff, you talked about this as well, you know, harm reduction does find a way, and the people who practice harm reduction, um, uh, <laughs> wow, they're made of strong stuff, so it was unsanctioned safer consumption that paved the way for us uh, to the, the sites that were officially sanctioned, or were they, we'll talk about that, uh, in November 2021. So from 2016 onward, uh, the Washington Heights program and the East Harlem program were running unsanctioned safer consumption programs in both of their locations and really choosing strategic moments over time uh, to reveal what we were doing and show our hands, so to speak, but really doing that on our terms. Some examples of this would be the New York Post. I'm sure everybody knows the New York Post. It's better to line bird cages than to actually read, but they would issue an article about the junkies in Washington Heights that are making it difficult for families to ride the train in the morning and get their kids to school. Um, we would take sort of that uh, jumping off point to start having conversations with elected officials in the area, school principals, um, moms and families, 
uh, even law enforcement to say, hey, we're getting a ton of bad press in the neighborhood. The epidemic is escalating. This is what we're doing. I know you don't think this is a part of the solution to this issue, but we believe it has a place and this is how it works. So kind of trying to make lemonade out of some terrible political lemons and constantly doing that reframe person by person in the neighborhoods where we operated as of course fentanyl was entering the drug supply in really significant ways and we had this burgeoning crisis unfolding all across the United States. Wouldn't you believe, and I know Nar Darwin is going to nod emphatically when I say this, when you bring people to witness the intervention in practice, to see the staff that are delivering this loving, patient-directed care for people who use drugs, and when you offer an opportunity to close the gap and for regular citizens or politicians or law enforcement or whoever to meet the people that are using the service, wouldn't you believe that all of those deeply held, often negative feelings begin to actually shift or fall away? So there's, there's power in dispelling the myths and these deeply held notions in revealing or showing the service. This is challenging, of course, because in the sites you want to maintain confidentiality. You don't want people to feel like they're in a zoo. But the big challenge for me and for our team was that there were no other examples in the United States. So we had to find the balance between allowing people in to see, and we often say to feel the room. And Darwin, I think you know what I mean. People need to feel the space. They need to share air. They need to share energy. They need to share experience with the people that use the service and the people that operate the service to really start shifting some things within themselves. We have had some of the staunchest detractors, the people who would say, get them out of the neighborhood, lock them all up, come to visit the sites and at least have some of that shift for them or some of those stronger sort of reactions be a little bit neutralized. We also use the unsanctioned sites to really help move um, the larger bureaucracies that surround the nonprofit sort of system in, in the United States. And of course, this being predominantly uh, the health department structure. So the New York City Department of Health, uh, in the in the New York context anyway, was just an unbelievable and lockstep partner uh, to us in getting these sites open, going back to even the unsanctioned sites. So we started to say to them, look, I mean, we knew this, secretly we knew this, and I, I certainly knew this coming from Vancouver where I learned all of this. Um, these are an incredible engagement tool. This is the tool that's going to reach the people that no one's been able to reach. When you build a service that actually meets the fundamental need of the person who is going to consume the service, it's not shocking that they come and they want to be there. So when Darwin was talking about all this blowing past traditional health care, well, of course, we've got to get out of our own way. We have to do health care for this population the way they want it. Interestingly, and this is uh, sometimes takes folks a second to digest, it's the very act of allowing the drug use to happen that provides us this unique platform and this deep, deep opportunity for engagement with a population that no one else gets. It's allowing the drug use that allows us to do this work. So no time limits at the New York sites, just like at Insight, absolutely. Same in New York, because why? Why would I put a time limit on a space of safety, dignity, respect, and why would I curtail that potential opportunity to help improve the life of somebody who really just gets knocked down and beaten down everywhere else outside of our doors? So when we started through the unsanctioned sites, 
just starting to sort of reveal some early data, some early impressions and starting to advance the conversation with them, we started to see a shift in the way they were relating to us as a provider. And this is another thing, especially in the United States that I think harm reduction providers really have to start doing better. We have to take a seat at the table. We have to stand in a position of power and authority and experience over what we know about how to run these services. So often in the United States, harm reduction as an intervention is really tokenized and it's off the corner of somebody's desk. It's really poorly funded or as Chelsea um, sort of touched on in her statement, it's, it's sort of legislated out of existence. We have to stop, we have to, we have to disallow that going forward. We have to step to the fore and say, absolutely not. This is a legitimate evidence-based public health intervention for a very particular set of folks. And we're gonna tell you how to do it. And the health department has to be given credit because they allowed us to do that. They, they sort of said, you know what? We have to acknowledge that we don't know everything about this. We have to acknowledge that it's going to be difficult for us to regulate your programs because there are no other programs in the United States. We do have to let you lead to a certain uh, extent and we wanna partner with you and sort of leverage your experience um, to improve the services throughout the entire health department. And that is, huge. Bureaucracy very rarely gets out of its own way and admits it doesn't know it doesn't know what it doesn't know. And the health department in New York City um, uh, sort of had the humility um, and, the, and the good sense to, to allow uh, On Point to lead in that way. So we worked really closely with them around advancing the, what we often refer to as harm reduction stepping stones. Um, you know, of course, we've got uh, safer harm reduction supply access. We have starting to introduce naloxone and uh, really broadening access to naloxone. We have drug testing initiatives, all of these stepping stones that are sort of advancing and ripening the conversation around eventually arriving at safer consumption. And that's what we did with uh, the health department in New York City, leveraging again, the unsanctioned site. The other thing that was really beneficial about the unsanctioned sites in New York City is we had the advantage of saying when we did launch, that these aren't new programs. NIMBY is a big thing, um, especially in the United States. And we were able to unequivocally say, to confidently say, this isn't a new program, we've been here. These are long-standing programs and this is a formalization of a program that has been running and operating, um, you know, semi in the open, uh, certainly with the knowledge of the health department and law enforcement and, and other stakeholders in, our, in the communities where we operate, but for six to seven years. So the Harlem program, uh, where our more traditional medical model is situated, um, that's a 35-year-old organization. And we'd been in the neighborhood where the OPC ultimately was launched. We'd been in the neighborhood for 22 years. Similarly, in Washington Heights, another really long-standing, well-respected harm reduction program, and had been in the neighborhood since 2005, and then operating the unsanctioned program since 2016. So kind of doing this reframe with the stakeholders and inviting them into the crisis to share the responsibility of addressing the crisis was, was a big sort of uh, community engagement and anti-NIMBY strategy that we used or sort of to um, neutralize any potential NIMBYism. By the time the sites actually launched in November 30th, 2021, particularly in the Washington Heights location, it was a little bit like yawn. They've been doing this. This isn't news. And that's exactly where we wanted them to be. From launch, um, 
this is where the New York story diverts a little bit from the Vancouver story. You, you may have heard Darwin say that if you want a tour insight, you have to be there at the crack of dawn. Uh, and that's because, correct me, Darwin, if I don't have this right, certainly this was true when I was there, um, tours happen when the site is closed. In New York City, we were facing something a little different. So for year one, knowing that it would be an additional pressure on the on the sites and on the people using the sites, we made a decision to keep our doors open. In our first year of operation, I think we hosted close to 400 tours. And that felt very important. It felt like a responsibility to allow people to come in and learn from the sites, feel the room, meet the people and learn um, for the longer term effort to expand safer consumption services to other jurisdictions in the United States. Going back to that kind of the idea that it's really difficult to negate the benefit of the sites, to see their utility and their efficacy at engaging this particular uh, population when you see them in action. All of those sort of myths that you, that you hold, the nightmares, all of the blanks you fill in your head, usually to the negative, you, those are, can't be upheld when you actually see these programs in operation, when you see the love, when you see the caring staff, the level of skill, the level of engagement, uh, and, and the possibility for further care that these sites provide. So we saw uh, during our first year of operation, you would not believe who came. We had jurisdictions from Alabama, Kentucky, all of these states where you would think there is nobody there who is ever going to be interested in consider considering safer consumption services saying like, we are, we are done. People are dying. We don't know what else to do. We need help. How do we start this process? Uh, the Department of Justice has been through. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later and how the feds have responded to these. Are they or are they not sanctioned sites? Um, obviously, local people, local providers, hospitals, other harm reduction agencies, uh, parents who have lost children, you name it, they've been through um, all to learn uh, about the sites with the intention of bringing this knowledge to other jurisdictions throughout the United States. Um, I'll just give some data because everybody else gave data, so I don't want to not give data. Um, we have uh, just under, uh, just over 3,000 people registered to the two consumption programs, one in Washington Heights and one in East Harlem. The sites have been used just under 70,000 times. Uh, we've intervened in um, over 750 overdoses at both sites, and we've only called emergency services 11 times. That's a huge cost savings to emergency services, the hospital system, and to law enforcement. 87% of the people who use our overdose prevention services have been connected into further care directly from the OPCs, and these are people who were not connected to anything before they started accessing the services. And we too, again, following in the philosophy of um, the Vancouver program, we hire very extensively from our participant base. So we are giving salaried uh, jobs to participants who um, sort of joined our community from uh, as an OPC participant who stabilized through access to the OPC uh, and, and have now joined our team to um, start working with their peers. I'll pause there just in case there are any questions or if there's anything that we didn't answer. Thank you. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot uh, about uh, unsanctioned OPCs that 
the ones in New York started out that way. The ones in Vancouver started out that way. Chelsea, uh, in, in your research and mine as well, we've learned that uh, there are many right now, even in the United States, that uh, have been going on for a while. You, could you tell us about that? Of course. So I think that harm reduction has a long history of furthering social justice through civil disobedience. And that's how syringe services have been and some still are run. Um, and as uh, Jeff has said here, there's been a number of pop-up OPCs across the country that have been documented. Um, there's one that has been studied pretty extensively that opened in 2014. Um, and there was a paper that evaluated that site that's from 2018. And it talks about some of the benefits PCs can provide, as well as some of the limitations that they may have for providing services as well. So some of those things is that by being underground, they don't have to meet with the political concerns that above ground OPCs might have to. So I think that Insight and um, On Point have really done an excellent job of being focused on what their community needs and not what is politically expedient. However, there are, of course, certain things that people, that certain best practices, like Kaylin uh, mentioned, one to one syringe exchange at syringe service programs that can limit the effectiveness of, pro of programs that are above ground because of the way that policies are implemented. So by being underground, these programs don't have to do that. Um, but some of these limitations come down to, it can restrict the size and diversity of the population. Um, and it can be a little bit harder to sometimes link to services for people who are ready to get into treatment or need other kinds of healthcare. And then just my last comment on this is really that um, from a public health perspective, we need to keep collecting data and the studies that have come out from OnPoint are excellent and really benefit the arguments for OPCs in the United States. Um, and I think that the challenge with studying underground OPCs from a academic perspective is that by virtue of being underground, it kind of confounds some of the data, um, as in they may not be able to speak as openly about it. So again, like the populations that they serve, we may not see that they're serving the same populations. We may not be able to figure out if the community is accepting them or rejecting them because the community probably doesn't know they're there, the surrounding community that is. Um, and again, it's harder to document public safety uh, aspects. But yes, as Jeff said, there's a number of underground ones as well. Right now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm going to address this to all three of you. Uh, there are three main obstacles in, right now uh, to the creation of, you know, officially sanctioned OPCs. First, uh, there's in the United States, we have the crack house statute or you know, 21 USC section 856 that makes it federally illegal. And as Chelsea pointed out, there's nothing that will prevent states from enacting their own state level crack house statutes. Now, I, 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 
I don't know if there's anything similar in Canada. The other uh, issue is NIMBYism, not in my backyard. Uh, people don't want overdose prevention centers in their neighborhood because they're afraid it's going to attract the wrong people, so to speak. And then the third objection that has to be overcome is a lot of people believe that by opening up an OPC, you're actually enabling drug use uh, or encouraging it and getting getting people started on it. But, you know, I've always had a logical problem with that thinking, you mean to tell me that a person, the only thing stopping a person from injecting that uh, a drug into their veins is the fact that they can't find a safe place to do it. So uh, let me start with Darwin and then I'll ask after Darwin, Kaylin and Chelsea, uh, what about those things? Starting with the crack house statue, do they have anything like that in Canada that you had to overcome? No, <clears throat> no, uh, remarkably little of that foolishness. We had a, uh, a hostile federal government. Uh, Kaylin can sort of roll her eyes in remembrance. Uh, the Harper government was dead set against removing the exemption to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, allowing drug use to be legal at Insight. They kept dangling the removal of that every year in front of us, and it was a huge campaign that Kaylin was instrumental in along with Mark and, and other people to uh, to draw attention to this and to keep the site open. So we have had our obstacles, but they have been less vehement and maybe a little bit less ridiculous than things like the Crackhouse statutes. We have a very good relationship with the local constabulary. Uh, we meet with a staff sergeant, a revolving group of staff sergeants regularly just to talk about issues, issues that me, we may have about law enforcement, maybe some issues that they have about something. It's a really good dialogue. And we have toured police departments from across the country. The VPD, uh, the, the problems between law enforcement and drug users hardly need enumerating. They are longstanding and deep. But the VPD has shown some commitment to advancing harm reduction as their stated policy. Uh, they have come out in favor of safe supply programs, supervised consumption sites, so it's been a strong relationship that way. It is possible. It's possible in that way that Kaylin talks about, you know, one human at a time, and then things start to shift that way. But the enabling question comes up always, doesn't it? It's the dumbest question I hear. Uh, example, when Insight was being organized, somebody wanted to have chairs that had padding on them in the post-injection room. Someone in the healthcare authority said, nope, that could be seen as an inducement to drug use. So no padding on those chairs. The Chill Out Lounge has a counter space that would be great for serving food. And God knows people need food in the downtown east side. It's the center of malnutrition in Canada. Can't have that be an inducement to drug use. I'll tell you what's an inducement to drug use. Being raped every day when you grow up, having to live in the alley, having to use in the alley, which is the public toilet of the downtown east side, pasts that are painful, presents that are uncertain, all of those things might make a person want to use pain relief. They're not, they're not using MDA and ecstasy in the downtown east side. These are the drugs of survival. And what enables drug use is loneliness, isolation, and pain, not padded chairs and a hot dog, you know? Um, so again, if you understand what is driving this epidemic, and most people seem to grasp it on some level, I think, 
Uh, it's not demonic possession. It is estrangement, isolation, and pain that drives it. The more we reduce those through employment, through safety, through engagement, through relationships, the less we enable catastrophic drug use. Uh, you said you got visits from the Justice Department as well. So that brings up the crack house statute. So uh, you could tackle all three uh, issues as well. Uh, you know, the Crackout statute, nimbyism, and enabling. Yes. Oh, what a trifecta. Um, <laughs> so the Crackhouse statute, for one. Um, you know, it's it's hopefully not going to come as a surprise that as harm reduction has evolved and grown and kind of taken root in the United States, there has been uh, just a, a plethora of legal minds how, who have who are digging into the Crackhouse statute. Um, you know, with an eye to, of course, its eventual repealment um, and in advance of any sort of repealment uh, by the Biden administration. And we do hope that he takes that first full circle moment because, uh, of course, he was um, a big part of enacting the crack house statute. And now he has this beautiful sort of silver platter moment in front of him to repeal it while he's in office. But if not to repeal it, then to sort of um, debunk it. And, and what's important to know about the crack house statute is that safer consumption was, was not a consideration when the act was being drafted. And thus the, safe uh, the crack house statute does not cover safer consumption. It, it wasn't even sort of a glimmer in anyone's eye when they were drafting that statute. Um, further, uh, safer consumption is a healthcare service, right? This, the crack house statute is, is very specifically not an address of, of anything resembling a healthcare service. So there's, there's, and I'm really just speaking about this very quickly and very superficially uh, in the interest of expediency, but uh, you, you know, the point stands, the crack house statute doesn't apply. doesn't mean that it's still not a threat and that it couldn't be enacted and, and be just a thorn in our side and a pain in the ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we wonder, and not that we're, you know, goading anyone uh, to enact it, would it really stand up? And sort of the consensus from the legal minds in the United States that have really thought about this is, and this is what they do all day long, is no. Um, it, it wouldn't It wouldn't really hold up uh, if levied against a safer consumption site. Um, one other thing I just want to say about the feds in the United States, the, the Department of Justice came um, we knew they were going to come. Of course, they had to come. We opened two consumption sites overnight, seemingly in the blink of an eye, um, and we're operating them with this very loud and proud strategy, right? Deliberately doing lots of media, intentionally trying to keep the public narrative around the sites positive, um, inviting people in to see them, trying to do all of this anti-stigma work in the public realm, while simultaneously trying to operate two sites. It wasn't an easy year, but it's one I'll never forget. So they came and we welcomed the visit because really the, the process towards legislation, approval, whatever it is, can't start until the initial visit happens. So they came and it was very, um, what's the saying? Pale, Yale and male. There was a lot of glasses and tweed and loafers and briefcases and they stayed for six hours. It was a really tight-lipped visit at first um, they visited both locations, spent a lot of time in both consumption rooms, and the last third of the visit was really around how do we regulate this? How 
do we allow for scalability and adaptability of this intervention? Because of course we need flexibility to allow for pop-up emergency tents in Kensington tomorrow. We want mobile, we want virtual, we want co-located in hospital, we want co-located with abstinence-based programming, we want co-located with housing, we want brick and mortar harm reduction sites, we want it all. So how do we allow for adaptability and scalability but make sure that they at least meet some standard of, uh, of practice. And for me, for one visit from DOJ, for that visit to end there with that line of inquiry and investigation to me is just, uh, just an, an astounding success. There are a bunch of other signals from the federal government that they are really readying themselves to come out in favor um, of safer consumption services as a strategy um, and as a public health solution to um, the overdose epidemic. You know, SAMHSA and OASIS uh, and, and HRSA really getting in the harm reduction game and issuing harm reduction grants for the first time. We have the safe house case that is currently being mediated with the Department of Justice as we speak, and that's going very, very well. We have, as you mentioned, harm reduction, uh, you know, finding a spot in the State of the Union address for the first time ever this year. There is so much positive movement. The other, and you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it, they didn't come and they didn't shut us down. That is the biggest piece of evidence that we have right? They, they, there has been no threats. There's been no interference. In fact, there's just been curiosity and sort of tacit support. And isn't that a beautiful place to be right now? So those are my thoughts on the crack house statute. What was the next one? NIMBYism? Well, actually, I'd like to mention you, you mentioned safe house. A lot of people may not know what that's about. Uh, and I'm not a legal expert, but you were saying that you don't think the crack house statute would hold up. Unfortunately, a, a group, a, a private nonprofit group tried to set up a safe consumption site in Philadelphia starting in 2019. And uh, they were told by the Justice Department that that's against the law and they will be punished if they do so. And that's been tied up in the courts because they argued, as you argued, that this, uh, that, that the crack house statute didn't apply to this. This is health care. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's been it, it, it they lost on, on one or two levels and then the Supreme Court didn't didn't uh, grant cert or agree to hear it and now they're sort of in a negotiation with the Justice Department a different Justice Department this time so um, just for people who didn't know what you meant when you said safe house and mm. I would argue that even with the justice even with a negotiation with the Justice Department as long as the law is is not either repealed or clarified, um, you're basically at the mercy of a, a, a particular Justice Department at a particular point in time. It's not that's yeah. not secure. Uh, the other questions I was asking is about your experience with NIMBYism, and uh, also what you say to people who say that this enables drug use. So I'll go to the enabling thing first because, like Darwin, this is my other favorite question. Um, it, it sort of goes to like, what is the point of the site? Is the site, is, is the objective to get people off drugs? And it might be controversial to say this, but no, that's not the point of the site at all. The point of the site is engagement, stabilization, and safety and care. And once you engage this, this very high risk, often very marginalized uh, population, very vulnerable population, into the service that they most need, 
you do start to see stabilization happen. And by just by way of example, the initial cohort that we engaged, we have two models and they're slightly different. Our Washington Heights model is the peer or consumer led model. And the cohort that uses that site is significantly younger than the East Har Harlem cohort, which is older. Um, and the vast majority of the overdose occurrence is amongst the Washington Heights cohort much younger, all speedball injectors, encampment dwelling, really, really all of the factors, high risk. Um, so if the objective was to, was, was to get them to abstinence, the room would be empty. And, and I will not have met the, 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 the sort of stated objective for improved safety for the people who use the site and for the community stakeholders where the site is located. If the room is empty, it's not doing its job right? So get people in the room, engage them, help them achieve stabilization. So this first cohort was overdosing constantly, really serious overdoses all the time. It was consistent access and getting them to trust that they had consistent access to the site that eventually allowed them to stabilize in their use a little bit. And we started to see longer periods between overdoses. They started to engage with the site in a slightly different way. Maybe they, initially they didn't even want the hot dog in the soft seat that Darwin was offering, but now they do. Now they're eating, now they're visiting the nurse. Now they're maybe talking to the, the case manager, right? So they're engaging with the site in a different way. The initial cohort is almost zero overdose occurrence. The initial cohort, now we're starting to see people that are getting housed. It's from that platform of stability that all of the other work is possible. But you'll even notice that I haven't mentioned abstinence yet because that comes later. When you are in survival drug use, that is almost not even, it's a non-starter. And it's difficult for people to understand, like, what is the point if the point is an abstinence? The point is engaging people, keeping them alive and helping to build in um, enough of a net and a cushion that they survive day to day and maybe stabilize, maybe move forward to those things. But if they don't, we've got them and they're safe, right? Our sites are not 24 hours yet. We're funded to be 24 hours, but oh my God, hiring is a challenge. We talked about this before we went live. You know, everybody's making a great living from their couch. Not, you know, nobody wants to come and work in Washington Heights and Harlem. It's been challenging and there's a national hiring uh, struggle across the country. So we lose people when we're closed. All of the fatalities in both of the neighborhoods amongst the participant base, we can track them without fail to hours that were not open. So we're taking beautiful care of people to, during the day, we're engaging, we're stabilizing, we're working towards all of these other outcomes to use, you know, let's get some buzzwords in there. But then we, we fail people when we're closed. So we're not enabling drug use, we're acknowledging that it's happening. We're picking it up out of the public sphere and we're putting it down somewhere much safer, much more dignified and with wraparound services that are there if people want them. But on its face, it's about safety, stabilization, and engagement. And I know that that's sort of like difficult to digest, particularly in the United States, but there it is. In terms of NIMBYism, I'm a big believer that we open programs like this for two distinct stakeholder groups, obviously for the people that are gonna be using the site, but we also open them for the community members in the neighborhoods where these sites are located. And if you are not designing a program that meets the needs of both of those stakeholders groups, get out. 
You've only done half your job if you're designing the program for the people that are going to use the site. Yes, that has to drive the heart and soul of the intervention, but you have to be conscientious that you are sharing land. You are a member of a community. You're not the only thing in it. So a safe consumption site, if it's run well, should integrate into the tapestry of the neighborhood, should in some ways do its part to address the concerns that the neighborhood is facing. There's a shared burden of responsibility around the health and safety of all citizens in a neighborhood. We're gonna do our part, they're gonna do their part, but we have to work together. One person's needs don't trump everybody else's, right? So a big part of the way we approach program design for the sites in New York City is, what can we take off the plate of emergency services? What can we take off the plate of the NYPD? We don't want them doing mental health calls for people. We don't want them arresting low-level drug users, right? We can do, we have options for you, right? How can we partner with the schools? How can we partner with the business improvement? What are they facing, right? We don't want them to be unkind to our people. We don't want them calling the police on our people all the time. They also don't want, you know, their stores robbed all day long, right? So there's... It's a, there has to be a symbiosis. There has to be open communication and collaboration so that NIMBY kind of can't even take purchase, right? It can't even have a foothold. Um, and I think that's one thing that On Point has been um, pretty good at. It's not perfect. I'm not going to sit here and say that there isn't anybody in Harlem or Washington Heights who doesn't want us the hell out, because that would be a lie, right? Going back to the idea that people have really deeply held um, feelings and beliefs about um, people who use drugs uh, and programs that serve them. But for the first two sites in the United States, it's really very little resistance. Um, there are a couple groups that I think this is the hill they're going to die on. And there's often this conflation of issues as well, right? Um, sort of um, oversaturation of drug treatment and methadone programs in, in poor black and brown neighborhoods. That's real. We're not that. We also agree that that happens, but there's kind of like we get lumped in with some of these other sort of um, very legitimate grievances around the way neighborhoods are organized and way resources are um, allocated, etc. The other thing that we have to constantly going back to the idea that you are always reframing when you're working in harm reduction, we are not the silver bullet. Safe consumption and harm reduction services is not going to suddenly undo racism. It's not going to suddenly deal with all of the class issues, unemployment, um, you know, racist educational systems, criminal justice, all of this. It's not going to immediately solve all of that, right? So really helping people understand what these sites are designed to do, who they serve, and how they can be of broader benefit to the neighborhood is, is really where everything has started for us. Um, in, in terms of uh, avoiding kind of falling into that horrible NIMBY pit. And we've tried to do that publicly, again, because we know other jurisdictions in the United States are looking at us and seeing how is it going? Is it going to go well or is it going to crash and burn? And so far, thank goodness, it's been going pretty well. Chelsea, what are your thoughts about those three? So, I mean, I don't know that I can say it any better than they already have. Um, but I do just want to say that I, I'm not on the ground every day. So what I read and what I hear is the exact same thing that, uh, Caitlin is talking about, about on point. Like I've heard that there's for the most part, really great community, um, relations. I've heard that there's really good public safety relations. I've heard, um, that, you know, they really take 
care of both their larger community as well as the community that they immediately serve. Um, and I think that as far as tacit approval of um, drug use when it comes to overdose prevention centers, I think that just comes back to understanding harm reduction and understanding that it is non-judgmental. It is not necessarily aiming for abstinence. It can be part of harm reduction if that's what someone wants, but it's not necessarily the goal. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to be understood because what I don't want from a policy perspective is for policymakers to think that if they approve overdose prevention centers, then drug use is going to go away or even overdoses are going to go away because that's just setting them up to fail. It's a situation where you have to understand that like, like Kaylin said, there's no silver bullet and like you can do all of these things, but there's greater, um, mechanisms at play that lead to overdose that lead to people using drugs and that's i think something that just can't be lost in this conversation just yeah and i add, think like two oh, really quick things if i could one and darwin again jump in if this is true if this is true for insight too i think it is i i i would say you know i haven't looked at this, but I would say very close to 100% of the people um, who are assigned registered to both of our sites have been on methadone, off methadone, on buprenorphine, off buprenorphine, have been to detox, have been to treatment, have tried to cold turkey, every single one, sometimes many, 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 many times, right? And this is this is not a popular thing to say, but, you know, abstinence fails every single time except for the one time it doesn't, right? And harm reduction is the big old net that catches everybody. It's a try, try again, right? And sometimes it's going to moderation or maintenance use or recreational, all the different kinds of ways that people can use drugs for all of the different reasons they use drugs. But this I, I think it needs to be deeply understood that this is not a community of people who hasn't attempted uh, multiple different intervals, the various traditional um, pathways to recovery that are available to them, right? Um, you know, and thus, you know, just like when your doctor tells you to stop smoking or go on a diet or whatever, when you don't stop smoking or when you don't go on a diet, you have to be able to try again. And, and I think that's the harm reduction kind of fills all those spaces. The other thing I just wanted to say quickly before I shut up is across the street from our Harlem location, and I just want to shout this from the rooftops because it's so important, there's a daycare across the street. We face each other. There's 20 feet of roadway between us, and we coexist very well together. We have clinic hours for the families of the daycare center. They use our holistic services program. We do flu shots for them. We naloxone train their parents. Um, they they help the, the larger community beyond them understand what we do. So they kind of, they speak on our behalf. They, they work with us in lots of different ways. It isn't impossible, right? And in these really dense urban areas, these big cities in the United States, you're not going to be able to cite a consumption program way over in the corner where there's no school and no residents and no churches and no anything. We are going to have to learn 
to coexist together because this crisis is not going to be over tomorrow, right? So I just wanted to just put that out there as well. Harm reduction issue. So first of all, I think when a lot of people think it enables drug use, they they just don't understand uh, what really drives uh, problematic drug use or substance use disorder. As as Darwin so uh, so eloquently uh, elucidated, these a lot of people who have problematic drug use, they're they're basically self medicating because they have a lot of pain that they're dealing with, uh, a lot of maybe psychic pain, but pain nonetheless. And as far as the harm reduction concept, this is a concept that should come really easily to physicians like myself, because particularly in the developed world, much of what we do every day is, is harm reduction. So if, if, a, if a doctor has a patient who's overweight and doesn't exercise and cholesterol levels going up and they have high blood pressure and borderline diabetes, uh, and even the doctor would like to get that person to go on a diet and exercise regimen could, you know, save, add years to their life, but they, they just can't for whatever reason or are unwilling. So when they prescribe uh, a blood pressure medicine and a statin drug for cholesterol and uh, metformin for diabetes, they're practicing harm reduction. They're, they're not necessarily endorsing the lifestyle choices that their patient is making. They're doing what they can as a physician to try to make, mitigate as much of the harm that comes from those choices as possible. So this should be a sort of a, just a natural thing for any healthcare practitioner to understand. Um, I, I wanna start going to some questions. I have a, a really interesting question from Amanda Hagerman at the Goldwater Institute, which happens to be here in Phoenix where I am. Uh, she says, considering homelessness and addiction go hand in hand, is there any evidence that overdose prevention centers could reduce the number of homeless individuals who are addicted and living out on the street? Uh, you want me, let me give that to Darwin first. Well, I would say, you know, very understandable, the connection between drug use and homelessness, my God, you know, whether it is the crystal meth you're using so that, you know, you won't have to worry about sleeping for a while or eating, uh, whether it's opiates that just, you know, remove that pain. Yes, again, the drugs of survival. Just to refer back to that, that, that scene where we're talking about people who need a service desperately and can't access it, flooding through insight, flooding past healthcare, you can leverage that in so many ways. And we have never had an explicit connection. It's been something that's been done informally, but the amount of housing referrals, that's maybe one of the strongest healthcare referrals you can make. And so explicit connections, you talk about wraparound services, explicit connections with housing services, as well as with recovery services and other healthcare services are, are a natural outgrowth of something like this. The important thing is that, again, as Caitlin talks about, it creates a space where people are willing to talk about that, you know, where people are willing to be vulnerable about those things and to, and where you can start making solutions and finding solutions that work. Now, that does not mean that necessarily any given city has the housing available. That's maybe the larger problem that way. Uh, but, but the logic of, of including housing as an aspect of healthcare isn't really even anything that needs to be talked about, I hope. You know, you get Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you, you know, all of that stuff. Well, core services like housing, food support, um, relationships, and a sense of meaning, these all start working together 
And that has nothing to do with abstinence or, or programs one way or the other. It is just when people see something that they can conceivably move towards and actually move towards, the moving happens on its own. It doesn't need you. It needs you to get out of the way. Maybe fill out some forms and crap like that. But creating that space where people can see a future for themselves. Say again, Jeff? Do you want to speak to that question as well? Yeah, Darwin's making me miss Canada. Um, we, <laughs> the, so the, the organization, the PHS Community Service Society, I, Darwin will have to quote the number, but runs, I think a couple thousand units of supportive housing for people who use drugs. Just, you know, please let's let that just resonate for a second. Supportive housing for people who use drugs. That is very different than supportive housing as, as we understand it in the United States, right? So to our friend from Arizona, yes, but the, what's missing is allowing the drug use to happen in the person's home, right? So right now in the United States, yes, we have supportive housing, sort of, you know, variations on a theme, but generally speaking, drug use uh, within the facility is still prohibited, right? So what are we seeing across the United States? You know, I, I, I think it's upwards of 80% of the overdose fatalities across the United States happen behind a locked door when someone is alone, often in their home. This is absolutely true for transitional housing out of, um, out of jails and prisons. It's absolutely true for the sheltering system. It's absolutely true for the supportive housing system because the drug use is disallowed, right? So what would it mean? What would it mean? I mean, when you're in your home and the door is closed, you can do whatever the hell you want. That's your space. However, this kind of paternalistic approach to providing um, housing for uh, vulnerable or at-risk populations is sort of this like policing of their behaviors, right? Um, and ultimately, in my opinion, ends up increasing risk for that person, not decreasing risk. What's interesting about safer consumption services is that going back to that idea that it engages and stabilizes, when you're stable in your drug use or more stable, or at least when you've had consistent access to education around safer use, naloxone, informed guidance around mixing drugs and dosing, all of the beautiful stuff that happens when you're consistently engaging with a safe consumption site, you become a better candidate for housing, right? Housing first is 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 just such a it's a fundamental human right, but not in the United States. And much of what we're offering people um, who who are using drugs, ask them to excise their most vulnerable characteristic, right? So yes, you can be housed. Um, but you can't use drugs here, right? So we're asking people to go back into these kind of patterns of secrecy, which increase risk for them. The flip side of this, I want to tell you, is we have folks here in our Washington Heights location, and many of them are being housed um, in this brand new sparkly building in Brooklyn. Woo! Just, it's far, <laughs> right? So it's going to be too far for these guys to make it to the consumption site every day. It's probably an hour on the train. And I want to tell you, they are panicking. They are crying. They are saying, I'm going to die there. What am I going to do? How am I going to get here? 
I, and, and this is, this is a population that has been, you know, living in the streets or the camps or the subway tunnels or whatever in New York City for years, who now are being given a what brand new, built, it's got a view of the fucking Statue of Liberty. And they're scared to go and live in it. We had a, a young woman here. We had just hired her. She was going to join the team in Washington Heights. She moved into this place. She was dead four days later. It happens. So again, this sort of, this, we have to manage expectations in reality. Just because you get a key to a house doesn't mean you're suddenly fixed, right? Just because you get a job, even if it's at a harm reduction agency, doesn't mean you're suddenly gonna be a perfect employee, right? This is time, this is long, this is lifetimes of trauma, right? That we have to help people through. But I'm rambling now, but the point in the States is, no, there is no, there's no housing for people who use drugs. But if there was, it would be great, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that their drug use would cease. Chime in here. Chelsea, oh, you want sorry. them to chime in? Yeah. <laughs> sorry, um, actually, I just <laughs> wanna echo everything that they had to say. I think that um, that's an excellent point and that, particularly the point that in the United States, so much housing comes with the stipulation that you're abstinent from using substances. And that just is not evidence-based. So um, that's all I have to say. Uh, a question comes from Anonymous saying, uh, are most of these uh, successful centers found in high density cities? This is my suspicion. Uh, I'd like, Chelsea, you know about this. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily found all in high density cities. I mean, the original one, Bern, Switzerland, is that, does that qualify as a high density city? I'll, I'll leave it to you to answer the question. I think they tend to congregate more in populated areas. Now, when we were talking about the speakeasies kind of idea of unsanctioned underground OPCs, like that's not an, it's not necessary that they're in a populated area. Again, uh, like Darwin said, like really all that you need is someone who knows how to reverse an overdose, a place, safe place for people to use their substance of choice and there you go, you've got an overdose prevention center. Um, so it not, not to be trite about that, just to be clear. Um, but I, I think that most of them have been in populated areas, especially in the United States. And most of the places where we're looking to put them are in cities. So, or at least that I know of that are looking to open them are in cities makes sense anyway, right? Because in the high density cities is we're going to find the greatest density of people who use drugs, I would think. Uh, did, did you want to say something about that, Kayla? It looked like you wanted to say, say something. Well, it just the, a big, one of the big questions that the community is chewing on right now is what do we do for the rurals? Um, and how do we, how do we get these services to the rurals? And I, I love this conversation and I love where it's going and really exploring a combination of virtual safer consumption with uh, mobile and brick and mortar. Um, there's some really fantastic, innovative stuff happening in the virtual realm, the Brave app, um, which uh, is another old, uh, not old, whoop, another uh, Vancouver colleague, um, and never use alone in the United States. Uh, you know, still patient-directed care, care plans are still devised by the person who's using the service. 
they're geolocated to your location in the nearest emergency services. They're really, really fantastic and, and really cool stuff coming out of the virtual safer consumption realm paired with um, you know, other consumption modalities like mobile and all this hybrid stuff that's happening because the rurals are absolutely under siege in this in this crisis. And so much much of the resource is, is going to the urban areas um, and, and that that can't be any longer. I'm not very familiar with the virtual uh, safe consumption. Tell uh, this started in Canada again, Darwin. Is that where it began? Well, I mean, at this point, I mean, Kaylin may know as much about this as I do. I mean, the uh, most familiar with the Brave app and what that allows for people, because the, the density of single room occupancies in the downtown east side is significant. And each one of those has the potentiality to be a door that you open and find a dead person behind. Uh, when we sort of data mapped overdoses during this crisis, the core of the downtown east side. There are less overdoses there. People are in public or in supervised consumption sites. And thus, there are so many people trained in naloxone interventions like drug users that it's just there's naloxone multiple times on every block ready. So those ironically are safer spaces. It's this penumbra or this halo around the area of private housing where we're seeing fatalities that way. So apps like Braver may be a solution for that because there are always going to be people who will choose to use alone. We have just inculcated that so, so, so deeply into people. You know, I don't think about drinking alone at home much. I generally like to be social around that. But when it comes to drug use, people want to hide and feel safe behind a locked door. So anything that can breach that in a way that works for people. And I think the Brave app is fantastic that way, but we're going to you know, always to be thinking about that and developing things that way. I do not know how the Brave app is going to work if your ambulance is 45 minutes away. You know, there are always challenges to, to try and surmount that way. Information ends up being the most important thing to transmit that way. We've had so many myths about what causes and what reverses overdoses in the last hundred years that people can have this strange stew of information, you know, and not know that, gosh, benzodiazepines and heroin, you are going to overdose. If you disinhibit yourself with alcohol and then shoot some heroin, you are going to overdose. All of those things just need to be brought to people. Non-judgmentally, here are the facts. Do what you will with them. We're actually running out of time. This you can see we're just opening up new areas to talk about. This is such a <laughs> an important and fascinating topic. We could probably have this go on all day, and I'm so sorry we couldn't get to all of the questions. But uh, our time is up, so I'm going to have to thank our fascinating guests, and hopefully, um, uh, as more and more people are uh, policymakers are are getting serious about wanting to do something to reduce overdoses. They'll take a look at this proven harm reduction strategy that in, in much of the developed world has been going on and working for close to 40 years. I wanna thank our guests for being here. I wanna thank our viewers for watching. Uh, this is has been recorded and will be archived. So for those of you who missed part of it or wanna re-see it in a, in a few hours, if you come on to the Cato Institute website, cato.org, you'll be able to view it. Uh, thank you once again.